0: Hey, everyone, this is Denise. And for all our American listeners, I want to wish you all a very happy Thanksgiving. Zelda and I are both celebrating the holiday with our families. I hope you and yours are also just having a fabulous time. And it's because it's Thanksgiving, we don't have anything new coming out this week. However, we thought we would revisit an old episode. And the episode we're going back to is episode number 33, Found in a Cave, where we discussed the life in the family tree of one Joseph Henry Loveless. If you recall, there was a day in 1979 where a family was hiking and they discovered these bones in a cave. And nobody knew for sure who that person was. And it was a question that was finally answered with the help of the DNA Doe Project in 2019. And that body was that of Joseph Henry Loveless. And Joseph Henry Lovelace wasn't an innocent victim. He had escaped prison from ni- in 1916, and he had been accused of murdering his wife. It was soon after that that he disappeared. So in this episode, you'll get to listen as we discuss all the events that led to his disappearance, including the murder of his wife. And we have a guest on this episode, Julie Dixon Jackson. She's a genetic genealogist and a podcast host of Cut Off Genes, one of our favorite podcasts. And then we're going to go into Lovelace's family history. So we hope you enjoy this. Now, we were going to take a week or so break, and then we will be back with a new episode covering Georgia Tan as a crossover episode of sorts with Julie Dixon Jackson again. And it's amazing. So I hope you enjoy our revisit with Joseph Henry Lovelace, And I hope you come back in a couple weeks when we cover Georgia Tan. Thanks, everyone. Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. This is Denise from Murderous Roots, and with me today is Zelda.
1: Hi, everyone! I showed today. The party can start.
0: <laughs> and we have a guest with us today, yay! Julie Dixon Jackson from the podcast Cut Off Jeans, which you all need to listen Hello! to because it's amazing. Oh, yay! Ooh, wow. <laughs> Thank the crowd you. Is Thanks well. for having me. <laughs> <laughs> so, how things been going with you, Zelda?
1: Actually, it's been a great week. Uh, the sun came out, the birds are singing, I've got company coming, so I have been forced to clean my house, and so I'm actually, like, living like a civilized person for once. How about you?
0: Wow. Well, it's it's Super Bowl Sunday, and we have family tradition here where we oh, make appetizers tonight. Fun! So, you know, I don't care about football, but I like the the, you know the halftime show and the commercials and that's about it. I'd rather be watching the Olympics. Mm-hmm. However, I did make lemon bars today for dessert. Ooh yeah. Okay, so I'll so, be
1: right over. Yeah. Yeah, come on. What time should that be? That sounds delicious.
0: Um we'll probably start at six. So when we're done recording, <laughs> just hop in your car and come on up. You know, it's only three hours.
1: I never remember the Super Bowl. Like literally I'm so disconnected from it. One time where I was working, I was traveling to Phoenix and everybody's like, "You're going to Phoenix? That's Super Bowl weekend!" And I'm like, "Yeah, who cares? So what? You know, blah blah blah." <laughs> I, and I'm like, "Why can't I find any hotel rooms? The so is will be clear. So expensive. Oh my God! I get there. Well, yeah, the Super Bowl was in Phoenix that year, and Ooh. so I'm like, "Yeah, that oh. I was so
2: not
0: aware of what was going on." <laughs> so. Yeah, that sounds like me. <laughs> so you're not into the Super Bowl either, Julie.
2: I am not into the Super Bowl. I am into the commercials. And my husband actually works in the commercial industry. So um, I've actually seen a couple of them already because our guys have worked on them. So I've had some previews. Neener. Now (laughs) you're a little jealous. That's not fair. Unless it involves like
1: horses and dogs, though, I'm cool. I'll wait. (laughs) <laughs> yeah
2: oh okay yeah no neither of them involve horses or dogs they they involve celebrity actors Ooh, though which are yeah. really fun so there's a couple that are really good. well
0: and then yeah. you know last week and i had a girls weekend zelda could not make it because of the winter storm we had the week before <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. yeah i i kind of have an I, I i saw a couple of your videos where you seem to be stranded
0: was oh i wasn't stranded i was at the um rest area okay taking a break oh, all right. as I was like starting to fall asleep. I'm like, okay, let's pull over. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, but then I, you know, I get to the rest area and I'm checking Facebook and everyone's like, don't come the roads yeah. are crap. Oh, no. And I'm like, shoot. And then I'm texting my husband who's going, are you sure you want to go down today? You can always turn around. And I'm like, I don't turn around. Dang it. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go. I ain't no yeah, quitter. But I also know that if it was really bad, I could turn around at that point. Mm-hmm. And I have family in St. Louis. Zelda really wasn't that far. Mm-hmm. I, I would be covered, but mm-hmm. <laughs> just like, no, I, I want this girls weekend so bad. It's been so many years since I've been away from my kids. <laughs> huh.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was in St. Louis. It was, um, at Lake of the Ozarks. All oh, right, all oh, right. That's right. Yeah. I didn't realize Lake of the Ozarks. You
0: can simple. be by next year because it's going to become an annual tradition.
2: Ooh, I I think Lake of the Ozarks. I think Ozark. Yeah, Is yeah the same thing? It's uh, yeah, okay. But it, it's a lake. Lake <laughs> of it, the Ozarks.
0: We yeah. I mean, okay. if if you don't get into the Ozarks too much, you're okay. All
2: right. It's not deliverance. I, in, I went to. <laughs> thank you. Um, I went to. um uh, St. Louis this last summer for oh, okay. the first time I loved it oh yeah it's
0: a fun That's, city I think I heard you on an episode yeah. talking about that
2: I actually love mm. St. Louis I'm like <laughs> and I know I sound surprised <laughs> don't I um, <laughs> no but it's like a, it's a real fun downtown area and they've got and I have friends that live in a little bit out um, and it's just so artsy and and mm-hmm. charming
1: well, as a Missourian, time. I thank you for your assessment. And <laughs> oh, yay! I love St. Louis too.
0: <laughs> yeah, I my family's history is rooted in Missouri. So okay, like on my mom's side only, basically. <laughs> but okay. actually, that's not true. Anyhow, but um, but like my, my grandmother, her family had been there since like the eighteen sixties in St. Okay. Louis. And my grandfather, her he was down in rural Missouri. Okay when <laughs> they came up. But
2: okay.
0: yeah, I graduated from high school in Saint Charles, Missouri, which is right across the Missouri River.
2: Okay. And it's a suburb. Cool.
0: Well, <laughs> before we start, I do have a corrections corners. Oh no,
1: you made a mistake. You
0: were wrong. Yeah. About well-
1: something that never happens.
0: Hey, I actually, this time you were wrong.
1: Okay, that we already know I do that all the time. So (laughs) (laughs) that is not a surprise.
0: So last episode when we recorded, I I thought we had a corrections and I couldn't find it. I found it. So on the Barbara Follett episode in December. Yes. Stefan Cook, his, um, her half nephew did listen and he passed along a correction plus some additional information.
1: Oh, that's awesome.
0: Yeah. He said, and he really enjoyed the episode, by the way. Oh no! So that made me feel proud. Um, But the correction is that Barbara was thirteen, not eight, when she sailed to Nova Scotia. Okay. And her chaperone was a family friend, not just a random sailor.
1: Okay, I was worried about her hanging out with a random sailor. Yeah. You know, so okay, that actually makes me feel much better about how well taken care of she was.
0: Yes, and then he added the information that Lydia Newhall Thomas, Barbara's grandmother, died in late February 1934, and Barbara visited with her shortly before she passed. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. And then our last episode, this isn't so much a correction, but we discussed briefly which state had the most serial killers. Yes! So I did a deep dive.
1: You're the best. What'd you find out?
0: So this is from World Population Review, the state with the highest number of serial killer victims... Is California. Of with 1,628 serial killings total. Oh my god. Next up is Texas with
1: 893. Wow. Well that makes sense because the population.
2: Right. Closing out the Can I guess th- on the third? Yeah, go for it. Washington State. Um, no. Oh, okay. Can I it's guess? number eight. Can- I thought I was on to something. Okay. It's number
0: eight. Num- the, t- the, the closing Illinois? out the top five. Yes, closing out the top five are Florida, Illinois, and New York. Oh,
2: oh. oh yeah.
0: However, oh, yeah. last episode, Zelda also <laughs> brought up the population aspect. And so if you do it by per capita, mm-hmm. it changes the top 10. Really? From 10 to number one, number 10 is California. Okay. Nine.
2: Because of the population. Yeah,
0: Wyoming. That makes sense. Then comes Oklahoma, Washington. Number six is Indiana. Zelda. That does
1: not surprise me. Having grown up in Indiana, and yeah. Evansville, Indiana, is the unsolved murder capital of the United States. And oh, wow. You oh. would think it's because our police force is just that bad, but actually, because <laughs> there's a bend in the river, and so bodies wash up. So oh. they weren't necessarily committed in Indiana, they're just discovered there.
0: Right. Number five is Illinois, okay. then Missouri. Number three surprised me, Kansas. Oh, hmm. Mm hmm. Number two, Louisiana. And does anybody want to guess number one?
2: New York. Did we already say Washington Florida. State?
0: Florida. Yeah. Yes. Okay. That was number seven.
1: I'm going to guess because we're doing c- per capita. I'm going to say Arizona.
0: You are both incorrect. Dang it. The correct answer is Alaska. Oh my gosh. Oh. Mm-hmm. oh.
2: Yeah, that makes sense
0: though. Yeah. I mean, they had Robert Hansen up there. True. Who... He probably
1: skewed it completely by
2: himself, too.
0: So... Probably.
2: <laughs> Wait, who was Robert Hansen?
0: He would take, um, I think, se- sex workers and he would kidnap them and then he would take them in a plane into this winter, uh, winter, in this wooded okay. area and he would hunt them like they were <gasps> an animal.
2: When was that?
0: Oh, gosh. That I don't remember. I'd have to look that up.
2: The reason I the, the reason that got my attention, and I'm sure is just a coincidence, but this case that I just worked on this last week, mm-hmm. um, my client's family, uh, all of her close relatives on a paternal side are Larue, mm-hmm. but her her grandfather or great grandfather used the name Larue, but was born Hanson. Oh. Um, and so I'm, in my mind, I'm like, oh, he changed his name because of because of the crazy murder. But well, it was from
0: 1971
2: to 1983
0: he operated. Oh, oh never mind. Okay. <laughs> I do that too, though. I, I'll be going through on a researching on my own tree or something. I'm like, oh, I wonder. Yep. And unlike okay, have- other people, when I find out I have killers in my tree, I'm like, ooh. I'm the same way. <laughs> and I'm like you, because I, I also Google. like to Google addresses i oh, do that yeah. all the time yes so
2: <laughs> so fun. yeah and put him in my tree i love doing that we're, we're
0: genealogy nerds and we like it <laughs> Yep.
2: Yep. <laughs> okay yep. so
0: zelda who are we talking about today and oh what's going on so exciting
1: oh my gosh okay so <laughs> joseph henry loveless is the subject for today's discussion and why am i thrilled because he's been dead a really long time and I'm really, <laughs> I love that part. Like, And by the way, Zelda,
0: this was actually inspired by an episode of Cut Off Jeans. It was coming uh, up in one? the DNA news. And I'm like, ooh, that sounds interesting. Let me go look him up.
2: Uh, did I talk about it on my podcast?
0: At one point. I'm going uh, through all your old episodes. So, Yeah.
2: You know what? When I looked it up to do this, it did sound familiar. So, yeah, it doesn't... It. it it certainly makes sense that I would have talked about okay. it at some point. Yeah. So
0: tell us about this one who's been dead a long time.
1: <laughs> well, the major <laughs> events, since the major events we're discussing today took place in 1916. I'm going to kind of set the stage a little bit because 1916 was just a crazy year for the United States. Tons of contrasts. The Gilded Age had ended. And what followed was this era of civil unrest and the growing strength of the workers' rights movements. Now, of course, lynchings of Black people were very common in the South, and Ida B. Wells, among many others, was working her ass off exposing the lynching culture of the American South and for Black and women's civil rights. Louis Brandeis, who I have just this, like, soft part of my heart for, was appointed (laughs) to the Supreme Court, the first Jewish Supreme Court justice, and boy, was it hotly contested because he was known for radically supporting workers' rights. Republican oh, Jeanette shocking. Rankin. I'm sorry.
2: We I both. I said shocking. <laughs> oh yeah.
1: <laughs> so keep yeah. going. We're just. The no more side change, the more they stay the same. Right. It's like mm-hmm. so yes. crazy. Yes. So Republican Jeanette mm-hmm. Rankin of Montana became the first woman elected to the United States House of Representatives. You might go. That's kind of crazy because women did not have the right to vote in federal elections at this point. Nope. The mexican revolution was underway and president woodrow wilson sent u.s troops in to support the mexican government against Pancho villa and this is a cute little factoid united states army aircraft flew their first mission over foreign soil when curtis jn3s of the first aero squadron carry out reconnaissance over mexico the u.s oh, wow. was one year isn't that crazy the yeah. u.s was one year into occupying haiti the Chicago Cubs played their first game at Weeman Park, now known as Wrigley Field. And I don't know if it's actually pronounced Weeman Park, and I should have called Rob because he's my resident Chicagoan. It's like, <laughs> How the hell do you pronounce this thing? But I didn't do that. Didn't occur to me until it was too late. So anyway, Wrigley Field now. World War I was raging in Europe, and the U.S. would jump in about a year later. So now west of the Mississippi, where we're mostly concerned today, was still considered pioneer territory although most of the Native American tribes had either been driven off their own land, slaughtered, or were completely subjugated. The rule of law was mostly a concept rather than a practice because the towns and the people, there were so spread apart, it was easy to commit crimes and relatively easy to escape and hide, especially compared to today. In fact, did you know, which I just found out in the course of researching this thing, about 60% of the U.S. population today lives east of the Mississippi despite having something like two-thirds of the landmass. It's a much smaller landmass mm-hmm. than west of the Mississippi, mm. which I thought was kind of crazy.
2: But a lot yeah. of it has
1: to do with where you find water and you can find more of it these right. the days. But anyway, into this territory the Mormons had trod as a great migration happened after the murder of founder Joseph Orr. So why did so many end up in Utah? Well mm-hmm. People were complete assholes to them and ran them out of pretty much everywhere else. So this There's two was sides the, to every
0: story. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so this was the milieu into which Joseph Henry Lovelace was born into a Mormon family on December third, eighteen seventy, in Utah Territory. Now, how did his parents, Joseph Jackson Lovelace and Sarah Jane Scriggins specifically get there from Indiana and Massachusetts? I have no freaking clue. Denise, do you happen to know? Thank God, because this is why I count on you for these things. Because I was like, (laughs) I could find like nothing about his childhood. I could find nothing about how he became the outlaw he did. And it seems to have been really well known at the time that he was a bootlegger, a thief, a counterfeiter, and eventually a murderer. The facts Mm -hmm. about his life seem pretty damn thin. So here's what we know. In 1899 Loveless married Harriet Jane Hattie Savage with whom he had one daughter. They married in Salt Lake City on October 3, 1899. A few years later in October 1903 Harriet filed for divorce from Loveless citing desertion and non-support. The divorce was granted. Yes, you have something. I got a question.
0: Where did you get that information about the divorce? I got that from Wikipedia. You want to know who put that information on Wikipedia? Did you put that information on Wikipedia? <gasps> yes, I
1: Denise!
2: did. Woo! Well, that's where I got mine, too. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, no. That that's was the only people. thing I added.
1: People, <laughs> oh, okay. Seriously. Appreciate oh. Denise. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the divorce was granted in May 1904 with Loveless never contesting the charges. Mm-hmm. In, by August 1905, Lovelace was living in Idaho and had married Agnes Octavia Caldwell, who sometimes went by Ada, which was totally cool since Joseph Henry Lovelace also went by other names like Walter Currens, Walt Carn, and Charles Smith. Mm-hmm. How did he get to Idaho? Original. I have no idea. <laughs> the couple had Cupboard four wagon? children from 1906 to 1913. So. The events of 1916, I was provided this actually brilliantly written article by Denise on the circumstances surrounding why Joseph Henry Lovelace is famous. And I'm just gonna read this to you because it's just the prose, it's just like chef's kiss. So this is from the Evening Capital News from Friday, May 12th, 1916. The headline reads, under arrest on murder charge in big old tiny script. Underneath, husband of woman slain at Dubois in jail, accused of the crime. A man believed to be Walter Currens, well-known about Lava Hot Springs for his bootlegging and notorious in Pocatella as a jailbird, was arrested Sunday morning at an early hour by D.W. Worthington of the Revelaire Detective Agency and Sheriff John Spencer of Fremont County in Spencer, Idaho, charged with beating out his wife's brains. Her death resulted after 50 hours of intense agony. It is charged that the axe was wielded by her common law husband in Dubois at an early hour Saturday morning after she returned home from a dance in that city. Quotes, Papa killed a man. A young son of the woman who first reported the death of his mother, said afterwards, Papa killed a man at Pebble, and Papa makes money too. The little snitch. Okay, that was my little addendum there. And yeah. <laughs> upon this statement, the authorities believe the slayer of J.C. Smith, the wealthy Pebble rancher who was killed about a year ago, is now in the hands of, a free, of the Fremont County authorities. Title, Record of the Woman. The woman who was killed Saturday night in Dubois had given her name as Mrs. Smith about that city, but it's since been learned she is Mrs. Ada Loveless. She has lived for some time around Lava Hot Springs, and she was an alleged bootlegger. She and the man, who gives his name as Smith, but is thought to be Walter Currens, had been in Dubois for a short time. Their operations in that vicinity had caused Smith to be put under surveillance for some time. Story of the Child I really love this story. I love the way this is written.
0: You're just cracking me up every time you do that.
1: (laughs) On Friday night, Mrs. Smith and her little son, eight years old, went to a dance where they remained until nearly two o'clock. Okay, bad parenting. Okay. (laughs) After the dance, Mrs. Smith and another woman went to a hotel and ate some cake and the little boy went home. She sent the little boy home at two o'clock in the morning by himself. Bad parenting. (laughs) Mrs. Smith left the hotel. In about an hour, the little boy returned and told that his mother was lying on the floor asleep and snoring heavily. The hotel man gave him some matches, and he returned home where he found that his mother was dying. His father was not there. Now, all of that seems very strange, doesn't it? I mean, Mm -hmm. she's laying on the floor. Now, they were living in a tent, so she was obviously going to be Ah. sleeping on the ground, but still... Weird snoring and then she's dead. And why did he have to go get matches? This is all very strange.
2: Yeah, that was my question. Yeah. <laughs> so we don't know why he he got matches. We have no
1: idea. I could not find anything that it's referred on. to it. And I'm like, was he planning to burn down the tent with her inside? I mean he eight year old fire starters are not unheard of.
2: But Or his father sent him to get matches so he could kill his mother. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That mm-hmm. that is way more logical than him being a fire starter, frankly. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> although not <yeah, laughs> Hundred percent certain. Just say, <laughs> okay. So we've seen legend. too much. Alleged. We should <laughs> see too much. Curran's is caught. Now remember, we're talking about Lovelace here, so they're actually referring to him by one of his many nom de plumes, and um, and thinking that's his real name. Okay. So neighbors answered the boy's cries, and the authorities were summoned. Sheriff Fisher of St. Anthony happened to be on his way to Dubois with the detective from Pocatello, and he immediately conducted a search for the husband. All day Saturday, the search was fruitless. And on Sunday morning, the local detective Fisher and in the justice of the peace at Spencer and the justice of this and the justice of this peace at Spencer, a town near Dubois, found currents crawling under a train, which was seen to leave for the north. Worthington dragged the alleged murderer from the truck and he was taken into custody by the sheriff. He has not yet been given a preliminary hearing. Has bogus money. At the time of his arrest, counterfeit money was in the possession of Smith. And with this as evidence, and the fact that the little boy ratted his father, I mean, little boy said his father made money, (laughs) there will probably be a federal charge brought against him in addition to the murder charge. Dun dun. So that is the excitement of the day and why we're here. Moving forward a few days at Agnes Lovelace's funeral, one of their children was quoted as saying, Papa never stayed in jail very long and he'll soon be out. Because, oh, my God, these kids do not know how to shut up. Anyway, <laughs> on May 18th, 1916, Lovelace did break out of the St. Anthony jail using a saw blade he had hidden in his shoe. Now, obviously, they did not do strip searches back then, because they would have found a saw blade hidden in his shoe, especially because he was known for escaping from jail by using saw blades hidden in his shoes. So, yeah. like, what the hell, people? People need to it's learn. It's like they didn't even care about <laughs> holding him in. So, which actually gives me another thought we will speak of later. Anyway. Yes. So, then Joseph Henry Lovelace disappeared for over 50 years, presumably having abandoned his children. So... The rest of this i actually found this great smithsonian magazine article that kind of detailed a lot of this so we're going to fast forward to 1979 a family searching for arrowheads in buffalo cave dubois idaho found a human torso buried in a burlap sack that's not an arrowhead 12 <laughs> years later the body was joined by a hand an arm and two legs all wrapped in the same material and dug up from the same cave system. An 11-year-old girl, by the way, found the hand. And I have to say, would I let my kid crawl around a cave where bodies had been found? I don't know that I necessarily would. But, you know, everybody's got their thing.
0: You would, yeah, well, you'd have to know that bodies had been found there.
2: That's not usually publicly... You
1: know, yeah, it's probably advertised. not the
2: body cave.
1: Well, they kind of
0: had, like, starts <laughs> <sides> up.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Because, well, you know, oh. like, actually,
0: I
2: don't know that. Watch I, out for bodies. I made that up. <laughs> I completely made that up. That's is that
0: like, watch out for rocks falling? Yeah, know? exactly. You just yes. don't
2: know. Don't trip over the carcass. Is... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the
1: investigators pieced together, ha ha, what they could in the intervening years. But they didn't have any kind of advanced genetic analysis, and the bones themselves could only say this. The victim was a white man with reddish brown hair who had been around 40 years old when he died, according to Jillian Brockle of The Washington Post. So they tried to identify the body for several years. The team at Idaho State University was going crazy, so they reached out to the DNA Doe Project for assistance in 2019. And Julie, tell us about the DNA Doe Project. This is where I come
2: in. (laughs) All right. So I am, uh, if if, I know you guys know, but the listeners may not know that I am a genetic genealogist. And we use (laughs) (laughs) direct-to-consumer DNA testing to find people. And it is used in various ways. I myself will find – I'm an adoptee, so I will find biological family for adoptees or NPEs, NPE, which are uh, misattributed parentage events. People who suddenly discover that their father usually was not their father. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. um, and – or people just with family mysteries. So the DNA Doe Project does exactly the same thing. This is also the way the Golden State Killer was discovered mm-hmm. and – many uh, serial killers have been brought to justice because of genetic genealogy. Yes. So the DNA Doe Project is an American nonprofit volunteer organization formed to identify unidentified deceased persons, commonly known as John Doe or Jane Doe, uh, using forensic genealogy. When it, it It's not so much genetic genealogy as forensic genealogy when we are working with deceased people or Crimes, criminal activity. Volunteers identified victims of automobile accidents, homicides, and unusual circumstances, and persons who committed suicide under an alias. It was founded by Colleen Fitzpatrick, who is a fascinating person in her own right, and Margaret Press. Oh, I love it when the smart ladies get together because stuff happens. Yes. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Uh, Colleen Fitzpatrick, I I went on a deep dive uh, about her one day and she is such a character and she's brilliant. So here's what they need to do. And I'm going to I'm going to give you the procedure of how this happens. When the DNA Doe Project is contacted by uh, law enforcement in order to identify these John or Jane Does, the first thing they have to do is extract a DNA sample from whatever remains that they have uh, sometimes it has to be repeated if the sample proves to have been degraded or too degraded for analysis then they fundraise for dna sequencing because that costs money Ooh, yeah. so these are uh, nonprofit organizations completely run by volunteers once that is done the sequencing happens the sequencing happens through an a, a company that basically is not a direct-to-consumer company, but it creates the same kind of sample, usually an autosomal sample, because that's what the direct-to-consumer companies use, that can then be uploaded to GEDmatch. Mm -hmm. GEDmatch is a public database that people, anyone can upload their DNA files to in order to do their own research for their own family. And then the analysis done using GEDmatch and the other tools, a tentative identification will be done of the dough. That tentative identification is where I come in. And that's when you, hopefully you'll get matches close enough to where you can build that matches tree up and out and down and triangulate with other matches mm-hmm. so you can figure out where they fit in this tree. Ultimately, they will probably give a list to law enforcement of the candidates that it could be. And law enforcement will then research that family. At some point, hopefully, we'll find a family uh, who has somebody that disappeared mm-hmm. and test a close relative or an immediate relative of that family. And that should determine who the John or Jane Doe is.
0: And that's how they identify.
2: And that's how they do it. And he did
0: have relatives that were living.
2: But the most difficult thing is, um, well, here's a list of difficulties and I'll I'll expand on them if necessary. One uh, problem is adoptions in the family tree, adoptions and NPEs. So a tree, we use existing trees and existing genealogical research to build that tree. A lot of the times, paper documents... Do not reflect NPEs, obviously, and adoptions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you could be doing the the building the family tree of somebody who is not actually their family. Right? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah.
0: Mainly because yeah. I've been doing that.
2: <laughs> yes, of course. Um, so that's a problem. Ethnicities for which there are not yet large databases, such as Native American, Hispanic, and African American. Uh, none of those ethnicities specifically are well uh, represented in the databases. Mm-hmm. So that can be a problem. That can make it um, a lot more difficult, as well as countries that do not, that either outlaw or just do not have access to direct to consumer DNA testing. Mm-hmm. So if the person you're looking for is a recent immigrant from, say, India, mm-hmm. Um, you're going to have a problem because there is no direct-to-consumer DNA testing in India.
0: Yeah.
2: Okay? Um, Another problem is endogamy, which in a nutshell is uh, a lot of intermarriages within a family. Let me explain that this is not um, uh, incest. This is just, these are communities that have been isolated and in one area for many, many years, communities or ethnicities or uh, social groups that end up marrying second, third cousins repeatedly. And all of a sudden the DNA is much more pronounced than it should be in a traditional genetic genealogy case.
0: I Mm. am a good example of that. Do tell. So I said, like my grandfather came from this small community in missouri they settled in missouri in this county crawford county missouri around the 1820s 1830s and my grandfather was the first one to leave and it's not a big community and then but other families moved in and basically if i had grown up there i would have wanted to look at the family tree before i would date anybody because odds are i'm about related to at least 70 80 percent of the people there and I actually have many double and triple cousins. And my mom is not only my mother, but she's also a very distant cousin.
2: Yep. Yep. So
0: I know all about that.
2: <laughs> yeah, way more common than we care to admit. But you know, <laughs>
0: no, it wasn't like admit, they were first just... cousins marrying, it was usually a situation yes. where they were kissing cousins. It's just the overlap starts to happen.
2: It just—I mean—the uh, some of the more endogamous communities are um, Ashkenazi Jewish mm-hmm. community is very endogamous. Prince Edward Island, um, uh, Acadian, Cajun, mm-hmm. um, uh, Polynesian. Yeah, there are so many.
0: Well, Zelda, do you have anything more on?
1: Henry? Well, I'm just so enraptured by this discussion because I find it fascinating in that. I will probably never get my own DNA tested because, you know, I love my family and I just don't know what would be found. You know, what are these people going to be linked to? I don't want to (laughs) know. So we'll just keep some distance. I have a feeling that, um, you know, anyway, moving along. What? (laughs) So. You know, the, the upshot of all this is researchers constructed this genealogical tree. and But Loveless was kind of already considered a plausible candidate because his gravestone, they had a grave marker for him, but it was just a cenotaph. So it wasn't... um, there His remains weren't there. It was just a stone. Mm-hmm. They found his 87-year-old grandson living in... And he was like, cool, I'll take a DNA test. Again, the kids are always snitches. And it confirmed that the <laughs> remains were those of his grandfather, Joseph Henry Loveless. So... As an aside, Joseph Henry Lovelace's head has never been found, nor have the people who killed him ever been identified.
2: Oh, well that explains why his uh, composite looks like Freddy Krueger. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah but his what's head, interesting is that been found.
0: I uh, actually have pictures of his parents, so I'm kind of surprised they didn't use some of that. Too,
2: well, they it? did. They oh. did. There's a composite mm-hmm. of him that was created with the images of family members. Yeah. So it's a composite of family members, but he looks like Freddy Krueger. It's right one of the worst the composites
0: than I've ever it's, seen. It's it a is terrible It composite. is. He
2: looks, yeah, mm-hmm. it looks like he may have been in yeah. a fire. I mean, yeah. it's, it's bad. It, it's Freddy Krueger. It essentially is Freddy mm-hmm. Krueger. I'm just saying. Well,
1: and what I think is interesting <laughs> is I don't know that anybody tried too hard to figure out what really happened to Henry Lovelace, Joseph Henry Lovelace, because there mm-hmm. are not a lot of talk about people looking too hard for him after he disappeared. Nope. So I suspect, you know, Ada's family was in town for her funeral. So I suspect they just kind of handled it. And everybody was like, okay, hey, it's handled. Nobody liked him much anyway. He was apparently quite the asshole. So it was like, Okay, and so everybody's like, yeah, we have no idea. He's just, you know, disappeared. Okay, yeah, that's weird. So I think it's right. probably just a badly kept secret.
0: Yeah, so I'll jump on in. It's Yay. time to talk about Lovelace's tree. And this tree is one of the reasons I love genealogy. Um, plenty of history, lots of stories to share. But more than that, you find yourself part of the lives of these people just for a short time. At least that's how I look at And I will say that Henry's tree taught me a few things I didn't know. And I even called and spoke to a friend in Utah for part of this tree. Um, she's Mormon, and I had questions. Lots of questions. And the Mormons know. <laughs> so before I get into Henry's childhood, let's go back and see who, what, and where they came from. So we can maybe understand the why, or maybe not. Because um, Can
2: I interrupt for just sure. a second? Um, And you may get to that, but if not, can I... Did you research the etymology of the name Loveless? I did not. Okay, well, I did.
0: (laughs) Oh, tell us more.
2: (laughs) Well, I just... Actually, I did just since we've been recording this, because I'm like, what an appropriate name for such a hateful person. Exactly, Um, right? Yeah. Yeah, right. So I actually Googled etymology of the name Loveless, and I will read you. The surname Loveless is derived from the old English word Lawless, oh. which means lawless and is ultimately derived from the old English word laughless, which means outlaw. As a surname, wow. Loveless came from a nickname for a person who was an outlaw or was uncontrolled or unrestrained. Wow. So there's
0: probably a genetic connection. That's
2: what we call kismet. Wow. <laughs> That's
0: and interestingly cool. enough, I found misspellings of the name several times, like <laughs> Lovelace not Loveless. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. And I saw Lawless. Uh Mm -hmm. So, cool. Well, as Zelda mentioned, his parents were Joseph Jackson Loveless and Sarah Jane Scriggins. And Scriggins is not a fun family name to research because it always pops up as Scoggins, Scroggins. Nobody knows how to spell it. Yeah, no. And Joseph was born in Indiana and Sarah, Massachusetts. They married in Utah, but it's possible they met when they both lived in Illinois. And we'll talk about how they ended up in Illinois in a little bit. Before I do go much further, I do need to note that I gathered much of the following story from family records and trees kept on FamilySearch.org, which is the website run by the Latter-day Saints. And while I tried to verify everything, there are some holes I wasn't able to fill. And I'll only discuss what I am able to ver- was able to verify. Because how they do trees on FamilySearch is a little different. It's kind of like mm. it's... The church's tree. If you change something, it's changed. So I don't upload my trees there because I don't want them changing stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't trust that. (laughs) I trust my research. Yeah. We'll start with Sarah Jane, who was one of at least four daughters born to parents Samuel Scriggins and Ellen Prentiss on August 14th, 1839 in Salem, Massachusetts, just a year after her parents married. Then sometime in the 1840s, I think might have been a little earlier, Samuel was exposed to the teachings of Joseph Smith, the head of the Mormon church, and became a, an immediate follower. He wanted to follow Smith out to Missouri, out to Naboo, and he wanted to take his family with him, but Samuel's wife wasn't having it. She didn't believe anything Smith had to say and thought Mormonism was bunk. Oh my. And so she refused to go with him. And she said, no, we're not going. We're not following Smith. We're staying here in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Well, this distressed Samuel a lot because he knew that this was the way to go. So he discussed the situation with the elders who told him to go to Illinois without his wife and to take their three daughters with him.
1: Oh, my gosh. So
0: he did. <sighs> uh. He left Massachusetts with Sarah Jane, Elizabeth Ann and Marianne, ages six, four and two leaving behind his pregnant wife, Ellen, in 1845.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: Now, I am kind of guessing the timeline based on a few of the facts that I found, but this is what I've gathered on his journey out west. One thing that didn't fit was a record that I found saying he was baptized in Nauvoo in 1841. So either they did it without him or Samuel went west on his own for a trip before coming back and trying to drag his family. I think the latter they, is the most they, possible. They
2: seem to be okay with doing it without you being there. Yeah, well, from, that's true. From my understanding. Yeah. 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 <laughs> in 1845,
0: though, he would be named as number 30 in the Quorum of Seventy within the Mormon church. So he made a great sacrifice and got a great reward. And you're going, what the heck is the Quorum of Seventy?
1: That was my thoughts exactly.
0: These are the questions <laughs> I asked my friend. <laughs> well, according to her, she was raised Mormon. And she's right now reconsidering everything. And that's why she doesn't want her name on the show. Mm -hmm. Um, The Quorum of Seventy is part of the hierarchy of the church. To be part of the quorum, one needs to be a church leader, what Mormons would call a high priest or an elder. The hierarchy starts at the top with the prophet. So whoever heads the church is the prophet. Right below the prophet sits his 12 apostles. And then the Quorum of Seventy is there to support the apostles. So it's like there's
2: seventy of them.
0: Yeah, and they were back in the day. They were actually numbered, and he was number thirty-four, I believe, or Mm thirty somewhere in there. And my friend says she doesn't think they they're numbered anymore, but they were back in the early days of the church. And so it would have been a big honor. It showed how committed he was to this church. So he's in Illinois, and about at the same time he arrives there is where they're facing all this backlash in illinois and so the mormons all leave illinois heading west and settled initially in canesville iowa again according to family stories they were detained for a couple years due to illness with daughter sarah jane contracting cholera then in june 1852 samuel and his daughters joined the william west lane company as part of a wagon train with about 15 families heading to utah it would take them three months to arrive at their destination salt lake city they would remain there until 1856, and then move to and I don't even I forgot to look up this word Nephi Nephi N e p h N e p h i Yeah Nephi
2: I Nephi, think it's Nephi Utah. Now
0: family records claim Sarah Jane married Joseph Jackson Lovelace when she was 16, so this would have been around 1855 to 1856. However, I found an actual marriage record through the church indicating they married in 1862. It's just like the Catholic Church, Zelda, it's, it. they don't count the marriage unless it's blessed. But they call it sealing the church. So it's possible that was when the marriage was sealed in the church record. Mm-hmm. But they were married before. I don't know. Now, Sarah, Jane, and Joseph would settle in Payson, Utah, and start their family. They had ten children, five girls, five boys, and Sarah would outlive them all.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, we're going to talk about the Loveless side of the family. The the outlaw side, I suppose. So, we're going to start with Henry's grandparents, John Jasper Loveless and Rachel Mahala Anderson. And the grandmother, Rachel, was a very distant descendant of Robert the Bruce, King of Scots. Allegedly, at least. I didn't go that far back, and I have no actual verification, so I need to say that. But it's possible, given that... Her distant grandfather was John Robert Bruce I, born in 1690 Aberdeen, Scotland. And on the Anderson side of her family, it looks like they were primarily Scottish with Anderson's descending from Highlanders in Scotland. Hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised if that was verified. And that was what I found on the family search tree, was that that's how they descended. I didn't go as far back on the Loveless line. Henry's grandfather, John Jasper... Um, his parents were Joseph Loveless and Dorothy Rogers, who married in Kentucky, then moved their family across the river to Ohio soon after. And they gave birth to John in Coleraine, Ohio, on June fourth, eighteen 1807. John and Rachel married in Perry, Ohio, in early 1826 and had their first of 10 children by the next year. But it was in 1831 that would change everything. So we know Samuel started heading west because he got exposed. 1831 was when the Loveless family would learn about Mormonism. Mm-hmm. Two visitors came to town. And, but instead of me telling you about it, I'm going to let John Jasper Loveless tell you in his own words. Oh. I found a little autobiographical statement, well, four pages that he wrote. Oh my gosh. Cool. That's like gold and genealogy. Yeah. <laughs> On July 4th, 1831, Two Mormon elders, Simeon Carter and Solomon Hancock, came into the town. And on the 5th of July, I heard them preaching. And on July 7th, 1831, I was baptized a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Wow. That's so quick. I
2: know.
0: (laughs) The elders remained preaching four or five days longer and built up a branch of some 30 members. I was ordained a teacher under their hands. Three or four weeks later... Thomas Marsh and Celie Griffin came and preached to us and ordained me a priest. Wow. Sometime in the month of October, mm-hmm, Simeon Carter returned from his tour to Zion in Jackson County, Missouri, and I'll revisit that in a minute, and on his return found me prostrated with burning fever. He prayed with me and ministered to me, and I was immediately healed. I arose from my bed and joined with him in returning thanks to God. This was the first miracle that I had witnessed. About two weeks after this, Solomon Hancock returned from his tour to Zion and baptized my wife. Wow! Oh, but wait, there's more. (laughs) But before I go into a lot more on this, we're going to just take a quick dive into Mormon history so everybody can understand some of the context. According to Joseph Smith, who claimed to be a prophet, who found gold tablets and spoke with God and Jesus, Jackson and went to prison. Well,
2: sorry, I, I'll get.
0: I'm getting to the prison. <laughs> okay, sorry,
2: don't, don't worry.
0: Jackson right. County, Missouri, was Zion, and Zion was where Adam and Eve lived after they were ejected from Eden. I, you know, I went to college I mean, in Lawrence, Kansas, which isn't too far from there, and I'm really confused why anybody would think that that would be Zion. I mean,
2: uh huh. Like paradise? It's supposed to be paradise, right? To me, paradise
0: is like Hawaii.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I would have bought into it much quicker if it was... (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
0: With this belief, as he spread his teachings, he encouraged all of his followers to follow him to Zion, to Kansas City, Missouri, basically. The Mormons believed a few things (laughs) about Zion. I know. You're dying there.
1: I've been to Kansas City. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay, I'm sorry.
0: Okay. Oh, you're, you're. Okay. They believed a few things about Zion, which would lead to some troubles with the local residents. Number one, they really believed that if they went, the land that was held by others would soon be their land. <laughs>
2: that it was That always over well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a problem. Yeah.
0: Native Americans were descended from Israelites. I don't know, yeah. Wow. They were they were also abolitionist, considering Zion to be a slave state, and their religion was the only right way and should be the law of the land.
1: Well, as a Catholic, I like to assert that ours is the only right way and should be the law <laughs> of the land. Huh.
2: There we have a quandary. <laughs> Perhaps
1: we need a crusade. <laughs> oh
2: no.
0: <laughs> oh, I knew okay. you were you were leaning to something there. Okay. <laughs> now, John and his family followed Joseph Smith's teachings and leadership completely. By 1833, the family lived in Lafayette County, Missouri. And it's not that far from Kansas City. In fact, Lafayette, I believe, came up on a print previous episode when we were talking about terry blair Mm -hmm. a lot of the mormons found themselves there after being pushed out of jackson county by the residents and from there the loveless family followed everyone to caldwell county missouri in 1837 then they were all pushed out of there and they all went to illinois now they were facing and i'm sure this only amped up their belief more discrimination based on their beliefs Mm -hmm. however i can't help but think that they had to have been doing some things that were upsetting to this me people <laughs> to drive them out as well. Like I I don't see it as a one-sided like oh, it's just all because of our beliefs.
2: I, you mean as opposed to stealing their land?
0: Well, well, they weren't stealing yet, but you know.
2: Okay. That was okay. what they
0: but I could see them telling them that's going to be our land.
2: Well, <laughs> I, yeah, I would I would call that a threat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and to,
1: I mean, Missourians have never really been known to being open and accepting of other cultures historically, nor today. Yeah. And I think, you know, the fact that we're talking basically Bible Belt Christians, Catholics stayed pretty much in St. Louis and trickled down oh, yeah. the Mississippi. But west of there, we're talking Bible Belt Christians who the Mormons were and con- would have been considered an abject evil because they weren't really right. Christian quote unquote and the polygamy thing was something oh, that, that pestered mean... like bothered a lot of people you right. know yeah as as it does today i mean you know the the i the way women are treated is something that creates lots of conversation
0: right sure well well so the family went to illinois and they they settled in 1838 in quincy illinois and quincy's right along the mississippi It's not that far from Hannibal, Missouri, where Mark Twain's stories took place. And it's a couple hours south of Nauvoo, um, which is the headquarters for the LDS at the time. And today is a tourist spot for modern day Mormons. I
1: must share with you, I have been there. Oh. And I did the Mormon experience while there. Oh, When I lived in St. Louis two decades ago, my upstairs neighbors were of this young Mormon couple. And I feel like they probably hope they could convert me. But I'm just like a huge church hopper. I mean, like, I love learning about stuff like this. So they were like, hey, would you like to go with us to Nauvoo and Keokuk? And I'm like, sure. I'm all about that life. So I we toured <laughs> everything. I saw the shows. I saw, you know, like it was, it
0: is something to experience. I'm sure. So, I, t- I don't live that I far, an and I, yet I'm still not running there. So <laughs>
1: <interesting>. <laughs> You know, if you were, like, aboard 20-something, yeah, it could be kind of cool to check out. But you're a grown woman with responsibilities now. So. Yes. Mm.
0: Well, in 1844, John went on a mission in Ohio with a partner um, for Joseph Smith. And while he was gone, trouble hit Nauvoo. And you already touched on a little bit, Zelda, but I'm going to get into the reasons everything went crazy. In June 1844, a newspaper in Nauvoo run by non-Mormons called the Nauvoo Expositor was about to print an expose on Smith. Uh-huh. Namely, that he practiced polygamy, because that was, he kept kind of secret and on the down low, and had plans to be a theocratic king. And this was important, given that Joseph Smith was running for president of the United States at the time. And in fact, that's why John Loveless was in Ohio, was on his campaign. That was his mission. (laughs) Now, Smith learned of the story that they were about to print. And as mayor of Nauvoo, he called the city council, made up of other Mormons, of course, together. They declared the expositor a public nuisance. And Smith ordered the destruction of the press. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. And they destroyed it. The response to this did not make people happy in the area. They were quite upset. Smith and his brothers, including Hiram, and the city council were charged with inciting a riot um, by the county. With the Nauvoo courts and town under his complete control, warrants for their arrest were dismissed. Then Smith declared martial law. Wow. Smith. Yeah. And Smith fled Illinois briefly and he did return and headed to the county seat in Carthage to surrender himself, his brothers joining him and he and his brothers were arrested and charged additionally now with treason against Illinois because of declaring martial law.
1: That is not the story they tell at the Nauvoo, um, Mormon experience
0: just saying no. Shocking. <laughs> no they don't and even my friend in Utah said she's just now in the last year been learning all this history and the context and what was actually happening and I'm sure they portrayed it as they these people were out to get them because of their faith In it mm-hmm.
2: nope mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's usually not just
0: that. yeah I mean mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> so they're sitting in jail and a mob of around 200 people formed and stormed the jail. Hiram Smith was shot and killed first, and somehow Joseph got a hold of a gun. This part I don't understand, because he was trying to shoot at them as they came at him. But he was shot, and he tried to escape out a the second story window and died on his way down. After learning of the death of Joseph Smith, John Loveless and his mission partner immediately returned to Nauvoo, and in his short autobiography, John described the atmosphere. So it's 1845, and he goes, A state of excitement still continued. I raised some good crops and prepared to build me a brick house early in the fall. The mob again commenced burning, pillaging, destroying, and driving the saints from their homes. And that's what they called themselves. They called themselves saints. Yeah. To take shelter in the woods or anywhere to save their lives. The whole country was almost one entire conflagration. On the ninth of September, 1845, I went to Nauvoo with a load, and on returning the next day, found that my family had fled into the wilderness for safety. My things scattered in every direction and my neighbors' buildings in flames. The same day, I took my family and a few things and went to Nauvoo. Up until the 24th day of December, my time was employed in gathering my property and moving it to Nauvoo and in guarding the brethren from the fury of the mob. Wow. On this day, I received my endowments in the temple.
1: Wait, wait, wait. What's endowment? I
0: was about to explain that. When he (gasps) said he received the endowments, it means he was ordained as a high priest or an elder. Wow. A few months later, the Loveless family left during the Mormon evacuation of Nauvoo. And this group would head into Iowa and Nebraska along the border. But before they left, John Loveless embraced polygamy. You know, he's been married 20 years. Why not add another wife and married his second wife, Sarah Karina Elmer Sweat. In 1847, at their new home in Pottawatomie County, Iowa, around Council Bluffs, he married third wife, Rhoda Sanford. Sarah would be the mother of their son, Martin, and Rhoda the mother of two children, John Oscar and Charlotte Lucretia. The majority of John's family joined the John G. Smith Company on May 1st, 1851, a wagon train of over 100 people journeying to Utah, and the trip would take four and a half months. After arriving in Utah, the family moved a couple of times, ultimately settling in Payson, Utah in 1859. Six years later, John would add a fourth wife.
1: Oh, my God. I mean,
0: at least he wasn't married to like 30, 20 to 30 wives like Brigham Young, but you know. Mm-hmm. And her name was Mary Pippard Gange. He was 57 and she 32. Wow. They had two children together, making John the father of 15. Mary Gange was the daughter of Thomas Edmund Gange, originally from England, and he had at least one other daughter, Rebecca Ann, 20 years Mary's junior. In 1872, seven years after his father wed Mary, John's son, William Duncan Lovelace, his ninth child with Rachel, married his aunt, Rebecca Gange. Oh. Yeah. Not only was Rebecca John's sister-in-law, she was also his daughter-in-law. That's normal, right? Oh,
1: my gosh.
0: Yeah. Um, One thing I did find interesting with this family was that the bonus wives did not live at John's home with Rachel. Hmm. And I asked my friend about this, and she indicated that that was totally normal at the time, that the men practicing polygamy often set up separate homes with each wife and would spend time visiting those homes. And I could find no official records on the marriages for each other wife. These are all marriages listed under Mormon records. Wow. But they weren't legal with the state. Clearly. Wow. Now, Henry's father, son of John, was Joseph Jackson Lovelace, and he was the third child born to John and Rachel, and he was born in Attica, Indiana. Oh hm Joseph was all in as a Mormon, like his father, although I never found any reference to multiple marriages, so I'm not sure that he embraced polygamy at least. However, when troubles began in Utah in 1857, Joseph volunteered to help, proudly taking part in the Utah War. I gotta tell you, doing this um, podcast exposes me to more bits of history that I either forgot or never learned. So I don't remember learning about the Utah War.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, we didn't learn much about it, just that it happened.
0: Well, I'll explain the Utah War, because I think, right, I think like it was mentioned, but it was like a Mm -hmm. footnote, like it wasn't anything big. And Mm -hmm. well, soon after President James Buchanan took the oath of office in 1857 he made the decision to tackle the mormon problem in the u.s held territory of utah concerns were being raised that brigham young the territorial governor appointed by president Fillmore, intended on creating a theocratic government mm-hmm. of course these fears were further spread by newspapers sensationalizing prior mormon conflicts as well as their beliefs particularly the belief that mormons wanted to create a zionist polygamous kingdom
1: which they and- did
0: Yes, I mean, (laughs) and that they would try to (laughs) displace anybody who was not Mormon. Mm -hmm. Young was perceived as an oppressive autocratic ruler, maintaining power with a military organization called the Danites, a group created in Missouri during their troubles in 1838. While the Latter day Saints would celebrate Independence Day, they also viewed the U.S. government with a great deal of suspicion. I believe they also do that to this day. And non-Mormon government workers would leave Utah telling others that Young did not respect the Constitution or Congress, that his word was law. Former Associate Justice for the Utah Territorial Supreme Court, William Drummond, left Utah in 1857, soon after Buchanan um, t- swore in. And he claimed that the church harassed federal officers, committed murders, slandered the federal government and destroyed records others backed his claims with additional accusations against young and the mormon church including treason battery fraud and theft so buchanan's response to the issues in the utah territory was to remove young as governor and instead appoint a non-mormon governor alfred cumming now of course we didn't have 24-hour news cycle then much less telephones. And Young did not know he was being replaced until Cumming showed up. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And Cumming arrived with 2,500 U.S. Army troops to help the new governor enforce laws. Wow. What the Mormons saw, though, were U.S. troops coming and feared attack. Mm -hmm. So they know these troops are coming at them and they don't realize what their purpose is. So they gathered their own men and deployed a strategy of locking the U.S. troops out of the Salt Lake Valley by building up fortifications in Echo Canyon and preventing them from receiving provisions. Wow. Joseph Loveless was part of the troops at Echo Canyon. But that's not the worst of it.
1: Okay, Joseph Loveless, like our Joseph That's the Loveless? father of
0: Joseph Loveless, Joseph Jackson Loveless, the father of our Loveless. Cool. Okay. All of this was called the Utah War. The war resulted in 150 deaths. 120 of those deaths occurring on September 11th, 1857, when a Mormon militia massacred the Baker-Fancher immigrant wagon train bound for California. Oh, wow. And there's all these details on it, and it's really scary. Only 17 settlers survived, and these were just the youngest of the children that survived. They killed all the men, women, and children except for the youngest children.
1: Oh, my God.
0: This was called the Mountain Meadow Massacre, And it happened in southwestern Utah, close to Cedar City. And as far as I know, um, Henry's father was not involved with that. He was up in Echo Canyon because the men that were involved with that were charged and some were put to death. Since the Loveless family is super large, I could probably spend hours in sharing stories about this family (laughs) and all Henry's aunts and uncles and grand aunts and grand uncles but, you know, since the podcast isn't five hours, I trimmed it down to a couple of rather fascinating stories. <laughs> the, the first one involved Henry. And I'm calling him Henry because Joseph Henry Lovelace went by Henry. I think that was to distinguish him from his father, probably. Well, when he wasn't going by Charles Smith or yeah. <laughs> any other his other aliases. So, you see, in August 1899, there were rumors that Henry's body had been found drowned in the Snake River in Idaho.
2: Mm.
0: Word of his drowning had reached his younger brother, Grant, who was working for the railroad near Medicine Bow, Wyoming. And it also reached a brother, Jed, who headed to Idaho to find out what happened. From the Globe header out of Payson, Utah, on 19th of August, 1899, I have the following story to share. The next day, Grant went into the restaurant and got his valise and some other things and asked for the room in the rear of the restaurant. So the next day being the next day after he learned of the disappearance of his brother Mm -hmm. and the supposed drowning. About two hours later, a dishwasher discovered smoke coming out of the room and on going there found the door locked and the window up. On gaining entrance, Loveless was found dead on one of the beds. His body partly covered up with a with the bed clothing, which was on fire, and also the clothing he wore.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: Mm -hmm. It was a single room about 12 feet square and had but one window. There were two beds in the room, about four feet apart. The revolver, a thirty-eight caliber, which he had purchased the same day at one of the stores in Medicine Bow, was found on the other bed, one of the cartridges having been fired. The ball entered just below the heart and severed one of the large arteries. Death must have been almost instantaneous. It seems that no one heard the shot fired. One party said he heard a peculiar noise, which was perhaps the report of the gun. Wow. There seems to be some mystery surrounding the young man's death, which to some extent dispels the theory of suicide. He purchased a box of cartridges when he bought the pistol, which could nowhere be found in this room of his possessions. This, with the fact that the revolver was found on the other bed quite a distance from the body, leads to the supposition that other hands than his own did the shooting. The day before, he had $28 and only 25 cents was found on his person. The coroner's jury returned a verdict that he came to his death by suicide, but could not account for all the circumstances. Wow. Wow. Yeah, the funeral was delayed until Thursday morning to await the arrival of his brother, Jed, who went up into Idaho to search for his brother who was supposed to be drowned. Now, clearly, brother Jed found Henry alive and well. You know how you're saying how Noe was searching Mm -hmm. for Henry. There was not one paper article about after his death saying that Jed was looking for his brother. Wow. And this is a a man who was clearly concerned about the welfare of his brother's. And interestingly enough, helpful brother Jed would also die tragically in 1915 at 46 years old. He was killed by a runaway train.
1: Oh my god. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of tragedy in
0: there is. Now on to the story of Henry's sister, Rachel Mahala Lovelace, namesake of her paternal grandmother. And I was it's funny because I'm finding stuff I'm telling my husband, you know, Chris, and I'm like, "Oh, you got He goes He goes, let me guess, it's for the podcast? I'm like, yeah. He goes, that's a good one. (laughs) That's fun. So, Rachel married Morris Davis in 1890. She was 18, he 23. So, it's nice. Yeah. By 1893, Morris disappeared. Or more specifically, deserted Rachel and their two-year-old son, Frank Davis. Oh, my God. Unable to locate Morris, Rachel decided to live her life. So she had an affair with a married man named Charles Patton, an affair that started in 1893. I know this because it made the papers. Oh my God. You see, her mother brought suit against Charles for adultery in 1894. So Rachel had found herself pregnant. She told Patton and he stopped coming around. Oh my God. Yeah. And so when the grand jury heard the facts of the case that her mother had submitted to um, the prosecution, prosecutor's office or whatever, They also charged Rachel with adultery. Yeah. Kind of backfired on mom, I think, a little bit there. to say. She probably
1: didn't think that one through very much.
0: Right? Well, Rachel went through the court system before Charles. And she came to court with her five-month-old son, who she claimed was Patton's child. A child she named Charles Patton. Wow. At some point, she took back her testimony that the child was Patton's, claiming it was her husband's. A charge that her husband denied. Wow, yeah, he was subpoenaed and was found, and he testified. Wow. Now, from all I gathered, she believed she would travel to Mexico with Patton, where they would both obtain divorces and marry each other. Rachel was acquitted of the charges, and Charles's charges. It would take a little bit longer, but they were ultimately dismissed. Wow. But wait, there's more with Rachel. Oh, my gosh. Rachel ended up in the papers again just a year after her acquittal for adultery. Why? She ended up pregnant again with a different baby daddy. Mm. An abortion that came close to killing her.
1: Oh, my God. Poor woman. I don't know. I'm starting to feel for her because it's one thing to be all like, yeah, she was just running around or whatever. But if she didn't have any income. I mean, and she needed men to give her things to support the kids she had. Mm -hmm. I can see how she ended up the way that she did. And it's just so tragic.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I feel for her, too. I'm not judging her on this. Okay, this is from the Salt Lake Tribune on September 21st, 1897. And I love the headline, Crook on Trial. Oh, gosh. This is from Provo, Utah on September 20th. The case of the state versus Joseph E. Crook. That's his name. Oh, my gosh. Is on trial. He is charged with providing a drug and an instrument to procure an abortion on Rachel Davis of York. This county, June 19th, 1896. The testimony of the prosecution is to the effect that during the early part of the year 1896, Rachel Davis resided with the family of Joseph Crook and that the defendant and the said Rachel Davis were criminally intimate. Wow. So adultery. Yeah. (laughs) When she told him in April of her condition, he said he could soon fix that, and he went to the drugstore and bought the drug and the instrument, which he gave to the young woman, with directions. Shortly afterward, after instructions by defendant, the woman procured an abortion and came nearly dying. She then gave away the details of the case, implicating the defendant. Oh my gosh. And the trial got nasty. I mean, and when the prosecution witnesses were cross-examined, the um, defense attorney would ask some questions going, well, is she a good person? Is she a good character? And a lot of them were saying, no, she's a bad character. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. However, in the end, Joseph Crook was found guilty and sentenced to six years imprisonment, which he appealed. I don't know what happened with the appeal, but he did appeal. I did find some articles that I found very entertaining because they described Rachel as a widow. Hmm. Morris was still living, and they were still technically married while this was going on.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: She was not a widow. After all that was settled, Rachel finally divorced Morris in 1899. Two days later, she married Andrew Crump. But wait, there's even more with Rachel. Rachel's son with Morris, Frank Davis was born around 1891 died at the age of 10 in a granary fire oh no yeah she had i mean she did not have an easy life he had been living in springville utah with the jonah t phillips family an arrangement made by his mother for him with his bed being set up in the granary on the night of april 25th 1901 frank went to bed at nine thirty p.m carrying a candle Two hours later, there was an explosion from the granary, resulting in the fire. Wow. Criminal charges were made against the Phillips family, but I didn't find any how, how that resolved, saying that they were at fault for even allowing mm. him to take the candle with him and Wow. Rachel's husband Andrew would die the next year of pneumonia and miners consumption.
1: Mm.
0: Rachel married once more her third marriage to William George Palmer around 1903. The couple had possibly seven children <gasps> with only three reaching adulthood. Oh my gosh. And it seems she separated or divorced from William before 1915 because she was listed as a widow in her obituary and Palmer was still living. Oh my gosh. In fact, I believe this is why she died in Idaho and not Utah. She had moved to Idaho with five or six of her children after her death, the children would be scattered amongst family and others, mainly in Idaho. Not one of the Palmer children lived with their father after her death. She oh was forty three when she died.
1: Oh my gosh. How many children did she end up having by the time all was said and done?
0: If if she if it was seven children, which I think it was plus one, she had nine children.
1: That poor
2: woman.
0: Okay. Oh my gosh. Now Going back to all that you said earlier, Zelda, that Joseph Henry, or Henry as he was known, Loveless, was not a good man. I have a few more things to share about him. Specifically, on the 1910 census, Henry and Agnes both claimed that this was their first and only marriage. (laughs) As we know, it was Henry's second marriage. But what you may not know is that Henry was Agnes's third husband. Oh, my gosh. Her first husband was William W. Smith. She married him when she was 16 in 1896. He was 38. Ew. Yeah. They divorced or annulled soon after. She married next William Tyre Glynn in 1900. They were both 20 and they'd have three children, Pearl, Althea, and Robert. I have no idea why they divorced, but they did so before 1905 when Agnes and Henry married. And yes, it was not a common law marriage like that article tried to make it out to be. They were married. Like I've seen the marriage record married.
1: So when they went on to have children, does that mean that she had two daughters named Pearl? No. Okay.
0: Just one. I remember seeing
1: the name Pearl, Mm -hmm. but that would have been from her first marriage.
0: Yes. Okay. Cool. that would have been a henry's stepdaughter
1: okay thank you, you
0: now agnes's father was robert and he came from scotland when he was around 16 or 17 to the united states and he worked as a horse breeder in 1900 her mother was hannah thomas and she was from south wales so she was like that first generation american born and bred in america now agnes had nine siblings two of which were twins So let's talk about the wives and learn a little bit more about them. We'll start with Harriet Hattie Savage. And I really wanted to know what happened to her after their divorce and what happened to their daughter and children. So seven months after her divorce was finalized, Hattie married again, this time to Albert Lovett. The couple would have five children of their own. Then on December 16th, 1924, Harriet Jane Savage Lovett died. Her cause of death was a new one for me. Old stricture esophagus. I had to Google it. And then it had um, secondary swallowed lie. Basically, she swallowed lie and it burned her esophagus. <gasps> oh, my God. And I have questions. Yeah. Like, so many questions. Was that like, intentional? Was it an accident? What happened? Wow. Mm-hmm. Four years later, her husband Albert died of tuberculosis. Oh
1: my goodness, those poor kids.
0: Yeah, she had two young daughters who were minors at the death of Albert. Even though they were not blood-related to Henry, I was curious what happened to them with the loss of both of their parents. I was unable to find their daughter Viva in the 1930 census, but I did find that she married in 1937 at the age of 22. But what about the youngest, Wima? She was five when her mom died and nine when her father died. In 1930, at the age of 11, she was living at the Utah State Mental Hospital. She would live there until her death at the age of 31 in 1950. Wow. Now, the only real clue I got as to why she was in the facility in the first place Mm -hmm. was her contributory causes of death. Although her main cause, myocarditis, is not typically found in somebody in their 30s. -hmm. But her contributory causes were spastic paraplegia and mental deficit. Oh, my. This leads me to believe she might have had cerebral palsy mm-hmm. right. or some variation. Now, of course, we do need to talk about Patty's daughter with Henry Lovelace, Thelma. It was she who set off the search for her father in the 1930s. From Jackson's whole courier on February 27, 1936, Nevada woman asked for help in locating father. A letter forwarded to the courier from the Secretary of State's office contains a plea for assistance from Mrs. Thelma Wing of Reno, Nevada, who is seeking to locate her father, Joseph Henry Loveless, thought to be living in Jackson Hole. Mrs. Wing states that her mother and father were divorced three months before she was born. I want to find him so much, she said. My mother has been dead for 11 years. I know I should have tried to find him before this, but I was just so neglectful. So she's Mm -hmm. feeling guilty for not having a relationship with her father. My father has never looked me up that I know of, but I can understand this. But if you would kindly help me, if you can, I would be grateful. Sadly, Thelma didn't have the full story because her parents didn't divorce three months before she was born, as Zelda mentioned earlier. Thelma was born in July, on July 15th, 1901. Her parents officially were divorced when she was three. But that tells me it's quite likely that Henry left the family before she was even born. Mm -hmm. And so that was her perception. And she never met her father ever in her life. But what had Thelma's life been like? Well, at the age of 15 in April 1917, Thelma got married to a six foot tall, dark and handsome man from a different land who came to Utah to attend Brigham Young University. Royal Loy Purcell, or as he went by Roy Roy was a big man on campus at BYU. When he married the young teen, this man, born in Malala, Samoa, was 28. According to family lore, he was part of the royal family in Samoa. And that is not something I could even confirm. I looked (laughs) and found no record of this family there. And I believe his father was from France and his mother was from Samoa. Roy and Thelma would have six children. The first, Luanna Jane, in January 1917, three months before they married. Unless there's a date that's wrong on a record, like a bad transcription error or something. Hmm. They had their last, Ivan Ross, or Lucky as he was known, in 1927. But the marriage was falling apart by then. The couple likely divorced sometime in 1929. In the 1930 census, I found Roy with all the children living with him. A couple months later, he would remarry to Etta Dickinson, the woman who lived with the family in the 1930 census as a servant slash housekeeper. Wow. On the other hand, according to the census, Thelma had left Utah and lived in Rose Park, Oregon with Canadian Ted Wing in April 1930. Goodness. Yeah, they would marry in October 1930. And I feel as if I should mention that when they married, Thelma was 29 and Ted was 21. Oh, my gosh. She robbed the cradle. Wow. And um, we'll circle back to the children of Roy and Thelma in a bit. Ted and Thelma never had any kids as far as I could discern. But let's discuss what happened to Roy, Thelma, and Ted. Just three years after their divorce, Roy was injured in a tragic accident as this article from the Salt Lake Tribune on March 4, 1932 explains. One killed, one hurt in shale slide. Two victims pinned by falling earth. Caught in a shale slide, Floyd E. Deerdorf was killed and Roy E. Purcell was injured Thursday at 2.50 p.m. Both were working for the State Road Commission. The accident occurred at the Shale Bank in Parley's Canyon. The two men with foreman T.H. Barton, had just completed loading a truck with shale, which was to be hauled to the nearby stretch for surfacing purposes. As Mr. Deardorff and Mr. Purcell started to climb aboard the truck, a fall of shale, some pieces, a foot across, fell upon them. Mr. Deardorff was killed instantly while Mr. Purcell suffered severe bruises. The injured man, who was taken to the LDS hospital, is not in serious condition, his physician reported. Mr. Purcell has worked for the State Road Commission for two years. He might not have been in serious condition at the time of this article, um, but he died two days later from his injuries.
1: Oh, my gosh. Wow. Mm -hmm. Poor man.
0: Yeah. Now, Thelma lived 40 years longer than Roy, not dying until age 70 in Eureka, California, living fairly close to many of their children. As for Ted... He found himself in legal trouble early in his marriage to Thelma, though his troubles didn't seem to impact their marriage in a detrimental way. I did, however, find that Ted was arrested on at least two different occasions for possessing alcohol during Prohibition, one of the arrests being a raid on his home, resulting in the arrest of Thelma. He appeared in court on that arrest with an affidavit saying the alcohol was not his wife or her friends, it was his. And oh his wife gosh. was released. So what happened to the children of Thelma, Henry's grandchildren? Let me tell you. Oh, and this is slightly off topic, but I found it interesting. In the U.S. Census at times, they were all listed under race, all the the children of Thelma and Roy, as Hawaiian.
1: Oh, that is interesting.
0: Yeah. Anyhow, here we go. The children of Thelma and Roy were Luanna Jane, Wesley Roy, Farrell Lamar, Carol Jean, Klein Malalia, and Ivan Ross. I'm not going to discuss every single one of them. But I did want to mention that only one of them was only ever married once. Everybody else had multiple marriages, at least two. We'll start with Farrell Lamar Purcell, who was born in 1921. In 1939, Farrell enlisted in the U.S. Army and was stationed at Honolulu by the 1940 census. Not only that, but he remained in Hawaii for some time and was there during the bombing of Pearl Harbor. On December 7th, 1941, he would serve until 1945 while serving in Hawaii. And during the war, which this part amuses me, he kept busy by playing pro football. Really? Yes. From 1942 to 1945. Not only that, but he got all pro honors in 1945 and played for the Army team that year as well.
1: That's so crazy.
0: Yeah. And according to a newspaper article I read published in 1946, he was a full-blooded Hawaiian football player. Um, nope. <laughs> Not full-blooded anything.
1: <laughs> Interesting.
0: Um, there, the article also mentioned that he was wounded three times during the war. So I guess he took breaks playing football to go fight with the army that he was part of. <laughs> but he could still play and was an excellent kicker known to punt a ball barefooted just as well as he did with the cleats on. After he left Hawaii, he returned to Utah and more specifically Salt Lake city. He married right away to Ellen Marie Amtoft. As their marriage began, Farrell used the GI Bill to go to school, attending Utah state university for a time. I saw a mention of university of Utah, but didn't fit with the stories but he might have gone to university of Utah at some point to finish his education, but I know he started at Utah state and he, his purpose was to become a teacher. That wasn't enough for this former pro footballer halfback. Farrell got on the Aggie football team. So the University Utah state football team playing for them in the fall of 1945, which he me- means he went from, from playing pro to playing college ball. Wow. Yeah, and who coached him and his brother, Klein? Dick Romney, Mitt Romney's first cousin, two times removed.
1: Oh, my gosh. Now, you said the Aggies, and that was Mm -hmm. Utah? Yeah. Because the Aggies now are Texas A.
0: They're still the Aggies in Utah. Really? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: What what does it mean to be an Aggie?
0: I don't know. I I have to find this
1: out, because that's crazy. I'm just going to be like, what is it? Now,
0: while school... Was going well. His marriage to Ellen was not. It would end a divorce in June, 1946. Or did it? On June 13th, 1946, I found the following in the Salt Lake Tribune. Divorce is granted. Ellen Marie Purcell from Pharrell Lamar Purcell. Mental cruelty. Plaintiff awarded restoration of maiden name. That gave me the impression that the divorce was final. Well, at the end of October that year, he married Georgia Elaine Thompson. That marriage would also be short. In March 1948, Georgia accused Pharrell of bigamy when she filed for an annulment saying he was already wed when they married. Oh, wow. So either the divorce wasn't as final as he believed or there is another wife that I missed.
1: Interesting.
0: It was with his third wife, Beverly Jane Thomas, who he married in June 1948, that he'd have children with. The great grandchildren of Henry Lovelace. This marriage would last 30 years before ending in divorce in October 1978. During their marriage, the family moved to Eureka, California, where Pharrell taught at the high school and coached several sports teams, including the swim team. In fact, it was claimed at his retirement that he had 20 undefeated swim teams starting in 1952 when he first started coaching the swim teams. I'm not sure how he ended up with 20, although it's likely he had more than one team a year. Because he was fired as the coach after a 10th school board meeting in June 1961. Oh, wow. He was accused of not being at all the practices, not showing up on time. Wow. Drinking in front of students. Oh, my gosh. And he denied that one. He's like, I would never. But, I mean, he kept his teaching job, so. Wow. And I did find a random article in Eureka paper mentioning that he was once on the Olympic swimming team. Oh. But then it didn't specify which one. Of course, I tried to verify the story with zero success. I looked up every Olympic swimming team from when he would have been able to do that and the publishing of the article, and I didn't find him on one single one of those. Farrell married one last time in 1979 to Ruth, a marriage that would last until his death in 2008. Farrell's brother and Thelma's son, Klein Purcell, also played football for Dick Romney at Utah State as a fullback. Before I go much further, I do need to mention the effect that their father's death in 1932 had on the family. Because now, you know, he has all these kids and he had um, a new wife, but Thelma was gone. All these kids. So in the beginning, I believe their stepmother, Etta, may have continued to care for the children, but I'm not positive on that. I do not believe any of the children went to Thelma, though, who lived with Ted at that time in Reno, Nevada. Mm. I'm honestly missing what happened between Roy's death in January, 1935 in early January, 1935 Etta remarried and she and her new husband left Utah to settle in Chicago, leaving all of Roy's children in Utah. Wow. I'm not positive what happened to each child, but I can say that the oldest daughter, Luanna got married at age 19 at the end of 1936. And her sister, Carol Jean married at the age of 16 in 1939. So was it seemed like there was a push that like they had to do things a little sooner. The 1940 census told me a bit more. Klein and Lucky Purcell lived in Children's Friendly Service Society of Utah in Salt Lake City, an orphanage. And according to the census, they had lived there since 1935. Now back to Klein, after playing football for a time, he enlisted in the military for a few years. Then in 1950, he married for the first time to Doris Miller, and he would pursue a new career in athletics. By 1951, the couple lived in New Mexico, where Klein was a Golden Glove boxer. Hmm. After having six children, the couple divorced. Klein married once more to Karen Ritchie in 1961, and they had three children together. So he's a father of nine.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Of course, one can't box forever, so Klein transitioned to training boxers and working construction. I even found a lovely write up on Klein in the Time Standard on January 20th, 1974. And I thought I'd share a part of it. Hmm. Appropriately enough, it was one of the greatest heavyweight champions of all time who started Klein in boxing, the Manassa Mahler. I started fighting in 1948, he recalls. I worked for Jack Dempsey's mother in Murray, Utah. She ran a small farm, and he used to come out there every summer. One day, he went into the house and brought out a pair of boxing gloves. He put another kid and I together. Afterward, he asked me, Klein, do you like to box? I told him, I love it. He began working with me, Klein continued. In his days, you just walked in and smacked somebody. He showed me how to throw a right hand. Boy, he could punch. He hit me a couple shots one day and knocked me right through the fence. I laid there for five minutes before I got up. He just hit me in the gloves and knocked me backwards. Upon learning that Klein was interested in turning pro, Dempsey advised him, better wait a while. Klein began his pugilistic career at 170 pounds. His first loss came after 21 straight victories. Wow. Yeah, he goes, That fight brought back words of wisdom from Dempsey that I haven't forgotten to this day, said Klein. He told me, No matter how good you think you are, there is always someone just a little bit better. Wow. That's Thelma and her children. Now let's go over to Agnes, Octavia Caldwell. She was born in 1880. And when she married her first husband, she was 16. And they had no children. She was 20 with marriage number two and had three children with him. And she was 25 at the time she married Henry. He was 34. And they had four children. So basically, she was the mother of seven children. Wow. And the four children she had with Henry were Claude, Edison, Thomas, and Bernice. After the death of Agnes, her mother, Hannah, a widow, took in at least three of the children, with three living with her in the 1920 census, Althea Glenn, as well as Claude and Edison Lovelace. The two youngest Lovelace children, Thomas and Bernice, lived with their uncle, Agnes's brother, and his wife. I was unable to find the location of Robert, but I imagine he was with another family member. Agnes's oldest child, Pearl Glenn, was not living with Agnes and Henry at the time of her mother's murder. In nineteen fourteen, at the age of thirteen, she married thirty-three-year-old Daniel Harrison Cummins. No. Yes.
1: Oh my God. Was she his first wife, or was no? She... I mean, like, was he? Was this a polygamous marriage?
0: No, I don't think it was. But it could have been. I do wonder if she married to get out of the Loveless household, though. Or should I say tent? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
0: Pearl Irene Glenn stayed married to Daniel for 20 years. So she married at 13 and she was there. And they likely separated or even divorced around 1934. When they married, Daniel was a divorced father of five children. Wow. So she's a 13-year-old with five stepchildren.
1: Oh, my God.
0: His first marriage wasn't especially long, ending after less than 14 years. And I'm pretty sure it wasn't um, a polygamous marriage because I believe his wife remarried. Then in 1934, I noticed in the local Idaho newspaper a reference to Pearl's children on like reports of what's going on in the schools, saying, for example, Fern Cummins will no longer be with us as she is moving to California tomorrow. Mm. And that's how I learned the couple were on their way to divorcing, if not already divorced. In fact, it seems all of their children, save one, their oldest, Glenn, who described himself as a transient on his World War II draft card, went with their mother to California. In the 1940 census, I found daughters Fern and Thelma living at the Pacific Colony Home for the Feeble-Minded in San Jose, California. I was unable to find Robert or Shirley, but Pearl lived with a family where she worked as a housekeeper. Her son, Glenn, was a transient with a few arrests, and died at 37 after being hit by a train. His body wasn't found right away either. Sometime before 1952, Pearl remarried to Edward Moker, seven years her junior. She died in 1984 at the age of 82. Wow. Now, Henry's other stepdaughter, Althea, seems to have the most normal, boring life of all the children of Agnes. Thank God somebody
1: did. Yes, she,
0: she was only married to one man, never divorced. Seemed like she had a good life. So, yay for that one. Wow. Robert Glenn, the other stepchild, he was kind of hard to trace, partly because Robert Glenn is not the most Googleable, because it comes up like Glenn Roberts or
1: (laughs) all sorts of interesting. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. He was one when his mother married Henry. So, I imagine that Henry was the father he knew. And all I was able to find on him was a marriage in 1928 that ended in divorce four years later. He died at age 61 in Los Angeles. Now we get to the first of Henry's children, Claude H. Loveless, the oldest child of the two of them. And he actually seemed to have it together. He married in 1921, and they stayed married until his death in 1964 at age 58. Hmm. Although I did find one entertaining story about an incident involving one of their six kids. And this is from the Ogden Standard Examiner on January 3rd, 1956. Walnut Bulletproof. Terrace family learns. Walls between the connected homes and Washington Terrace are apparently not bulletproof, one family found out yesterday. After hearing a muffled explosion, Mr. and Mrs. Kenneth Bingham found a slug had plowed into the wall of their bathroom. Though nobody was hurt, they reported the incident to the sheriff's office. Debbie said they had found that a youngster, Larry Loveless, in the apartment next door, had accidentally discharged a twenty two pistol while loading it in the bedroom.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: The slug plowed through the separating wall and lodged in the bathroom closet in the Bingham home. Young Larry Loveless is the son of Mr. and Mrs. Claude Loveless. I mean, proving that there were issues with guns even back then. But please note that young Larry was 15 at the time. He wasn't that young. (laughs) Wow. Now, Claude's brother, Edison Loveless, the second born between Henry and Agnes, I think he was the eight-year-old who reported on his mother's death. And he never forgot what his dad did is my impression because he changed his last name from Loveless to Caldwell. His mother's maiden name. And he went by Edison Caldwell the remainder of his life. He became a military man enlisting the first time in 1929 or early 1930. As I found him on the 1930 census residing at the Presidio in San Francisco.
1: Oh, hmm. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. By 1940, he was located at Wahiaga, Hawaii, at Schofield Barracks on Oahu. It's not the same location as his half-nephew, Farrell Purcell, but nearby. Odds are, though, that since Thelma grew up separately, he probably didn't even know about her, much less her family. And it's likely he was still in Honolulu at the time of Pearl Harbor, just like his nephew. By 1943, he was in Montana, where he met and married Helen McLean. They would only have one child, Edison Eastman Caldwell. And like his siblings before him, Edison died before reaching 60 at the age of 56. Wow. Interestingly, he, like half-brother Robert Glenn, died in Los Angeles in April 1965, 20 days apart. Wow. Their next son was Thomas Loveless the youngest son of Henry and Agnes, who was five at the time of the murder. And I found an article that will convey all I would have said anyway, so I'll just read it. And please note that there are some inaccuracies that we can talk about after I share the article. And it was in the Salt Lake Tribune on October 30th, 1941. Speeding auto hits bridge. A speeding automobile crashed into a bridge over Chalk Creek in North Colville early Wednesday morning, carrying two occupants to their death. Victims of the accident were Ora Alfred George Burrell, 65, and Thomas Loveless, 31, both of Ogden. Excessive speed was blamed by a coroner's jury Wednesday. The accident occurred about a half hour after the men stopped at a service station near the bridge. They drove through the business district, then turned around and started north, out of town toward Ogden. The station attendant, Holly Ellis, said, Mr. Burrell, who was driving, waved as they started out of town, that he apparently saw the bridge too late to avoid striking one corner of it. Oh. The entire side of the car was torn and twisted. Then the article goes on to tell about Mr. Burrell, but we'll skip that. And we'll go on to what it says about M- Thomas Lovelace. Mr. Lovelace, the other victim of the accident, was born October 4th, 1910, at Soda Springs, a son of Clyde H. and Agnes Caldwell. Interesting. Loveless. Mm-hmm. While he was a child, his parents were killed accidentally, and he made his home for several years with an aunt, Mrs. Lily Caldwell of Mallet, Idaho. He married Beulah Hanny in 1932 at Ogden. Yes, the name is wrong, and it's clear that they know that the father's dead.
1: Wow.
0: Accidentally. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I got to tell you, I don't know that I would be telling a lot of people that story. So True.
0: But I did find one article, and I can never re-find it, where it said that his father's name was Claude H. Mm-hmm. That was his brother. And that his both of his parents were murdered. Mm-hmm. And I found that very interesting. Yeah, recently he had been working at Utah General Depot for Johnson & Leck Construction Company. He was a carpenter's helper at the Army Depot. Surviving are his widow, two brothers, Claude H. Loveless and Edison Loveless, a soldier stationed in Missouri, three sisters, Mrs. Pearl Cummings, Mrs. Althea Gardner, and Mrs. Bernice Yearsley, and a half-brother, Robert Glenn of Los Angeles, California. And I noted that it said he had three sisters and it doesn't mention Thelma, which supports my theory that her brothers and sisters were not aware of her existence. Wow. Last, but certainly not least, is the youngest child of Agnes and her murdering evil husband, Henry Bernice. She, like Brother Edison, dropped the last name Loveless and used Caldwell as her maiden name. Her first husband was Carl Yearsley, whom she probably married in August 1931 when Bernice was 18. They had two children and would divorce between 1940 and 1944. She next married Glenn Kimball in 1945 in Wyoming and they had fraternal twins in 1946, a boy and a girl, and would divorce a year later in November 1947. However, I did find where they applied for a marriage license in Colorado in November 1948, just a year later, which I'll admit to find interesting given that the reason for the divorce was intolerable indignities. Oh my. This time, the marriage would end with a car accident on August 11th, 1950. Oh, what happened? This is from the Casper Star Tribune on August 11th, 1950. Glenn C. Kimball, 33-year-old Bureau of Mines chemist, was killed instantly early today in an auto accident a mile west of the summit of Sherman Hill. Authorities reported that Kimball's car failed to make the first curve on US-30 a mile west of the summit. The car traveled 207 feet before stopping and Kimball's body was hurled 80 feet from the car. Time of the accident was placed at 2.45 a.m. Kimball was married and a father of four-and-a-half-year-old twins. Wow. Yeah. That's very suspicious. Yeah, the 2.45 a.m. It is suspicious. Bernice would next marry Howard Child sometime between 1950 and 1957. The marriage would last until his death at age 82 in 1980. Her final marriage ended at her death at the age of 81. And that was to Ernest Orion Sears. Wow. I have a couple random family facts. Henry's oldest paternal uncle, James Washington Lovelace, had three wives and 36 children, arrested in 1886 and charged with unlawful cohabitation. He was sentenced to six months in prison for his polygamy. Wow. And he died shortly after he was released from prison. Wow. And his paternal uncle Hiram died in a mental hospital at the age of 61.
1: There's a lot of history of mental illness in this family.
0: Yes, there is. And that was the family tree of Joseph Henry Lovelace. And I know I miss stuff, but there's only so much time.
1: Well, he was related to a lot of people.
0: Yes. Those polygamous marriages make it really a lot. A lot. Wow. A lot. Wow. So, yeah. It's just
1: wow. <laughs> like they moved around a lot. There was a lot going on, a lot of children, mm-hmm. a lot of bad decision making, you know, and it's just, it's a little like, wow, <laughs> you know, and the multiple
0: marriages
1: and the child abandonment. I mean, that's the yes. thing that like, okay, I, I totally get being sick of your spouse. Like, that's why mm-hmm. I never married is because I'm like, yeah, adults, blah, you know, humans in general, blah. But your own child?
0: I mean... Well, and Thelma leaving her kids with the husband and then, like, she's in Oregon. Mm -hmm. I don't understand. I figure... I I think there must be something that's missing. Because his first wife, Roy Purcells, she gets into some stuff on this one article I found that he was not a good guy necessarily. Mm -hmm. And, like... She she goes. I saw him for thirty minutes on on Christmas Day because he went and spent the rest of his time with his family and mm-hmm. and other things. Just some this, some stuff that was going on. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, okay, I do wonder if there was abuse. Or she just escaped, or did she have this fling with this twenty one year old mm-hmm. and just go with him?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, but even aside from her, all these men. Yeah. Who have just walked away from their kids. It's like, how, how do you I mean, even even today, I don't know how people how anything. And I know it happens all the time. You know, it's far more common for men to do that than it is. But, you know, I, I, I don't understand that at all. But I mean, I get attached to in like three minutes of knowing somebody suddenly it's like, okay I must be responsible for you the rest of my life because I know you now. But it's, I, I mean, a child, I like, just can't even imagine. I mean, like even my nieces and nephews, I mean, if they yeah. needed anything ever, all they had to You're do good was aunt. just let me know, you know, and it's just...
0: Well, there was one thing I didn't include because I, I didn't research a whole lot, but I did talk to my friend about this one. So John, John's second wife and his polygamous marriage, Sarah, I found her in the census and she was Married to a different man at the same time, and I was confused by this. And so I talked to my friend. I go, "Well, I don't understand this because I found her living with him, and it seemed like that was she was married to him." And she goes, "Oh yeah, that happened too." And I go, "Explain." And she goes, "Well, for example, she goes Joseph Smith was famous for sending some of the men on a mission so he could marry their wives."
1: Mm, that's true. I've heard that.
0: And so that would happen. So the men would go off, they would marry a different wife, and then the wife would have more than one husband and multiple families to keep track of. Mm-hmm. And you're, it's just like, whoa. Yeah. Well, this was so much fun. I'm so glad. Now, the audience might not know uh Julie had to leave in the middle, and she was sad to do so, but we loved having her on the podcast.
1: Oh, she's fantastic. Oh, my gosh. Well, and she's her. just like I like. she is on her own podcast. I mean, yeah. just delightful to talk to you, So
0: and um, we do have a crossover coming up soon. We just need to schedule it. And so we'll get that going. But it'd be super fun. But our next episode without the crossover, though, I'm already researching.
1: <gasps> Are you allowed to say who it is yet? Yes. Who is it?
0: Um, Dennis Lynn Rader, the BTK killer. Oh, man,
1: that's going to be awesome.
0: Yeah, I'm already going in and um, I'll give you all a hint. There are cousins who married cousins in his family. Mm. I mean, they weren't first cousins, so I will say that. But they would have known they were cousins because they both had the same last name. And it wasn't like the last name Scott. Wow. Or Smith or Miller or something.
1: It's like the Roosevelt family. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Well, Denise, have a great week. Everybody listening, thanks for listening.
0: We'll be back in a couple weeks and come join us where murder and family meet. Thank you for listening to Murderous Roots. If you enjoyed our podcast, we hope that you'll subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. You can find us on most social media outlets like Twitter, Facebook, instagram and even tiktok you can also find us at murderousroots.com that's m-u-r-d-e-r-o-u-s-r-o-o-t-s dot com where you can find more materials related to the episode that we just discussed